I thank, I thank you all for coming. I'm thrilled to see, to, to see all, all of you. I was about your age when I saw my first opera, and you see what happened to me. Changed my life. So <laughs> I hope we can uh, add something to your lives today. So how many people in the audience have been to the opera before? Oh, Good. quite a few. That's great. Uh, and how many people in the audience have been to a piece of uh, musical theater, have seen a musical? Um, great. So you're extremely well prepared for this afternoon. I, actually, I think we would actually start there, James, which is talking about um, Candide is a slightly unusual piece because, of course, it was composed um, for Broadway. It was composed for a musical theater venue, um, but has in recent uh, decades become a part of the canon in opera houses. Can we, can we talk about the piece a little bit through that lens of, of the kind of hybrid um, spoken dialogue, the kinds of ways that you cast the piece, um, uh, why, why it belongs at an opera house? Sure. That's, you know, opera houses, what is in an opera house? A lot of things can go on in an opera house. You can hear operas that are written in the 19th century in Italian. You can hear uh, operas that are written in German. You can hear operas that are written by Mozart and took place around the time of the American Revolution. Uh, you can hear uh, Broadway musicals. Uh, you can hear uh, things here in CC, uh, pieces, so many styles. Now, uh, with those styles, we, we call it all opera. And opera is some form of singing drama. Uh, in other words, people sing uh, their story instead of, instead of speak their story, for the most part. And you know, there's all sorts of jokes, like the soprano who's dying and sings that five-minute aria as she expires. You know, that's kind of, these are kind of, uh, these are kind of cliches and things. Um, then there, there are certain works that have um, an alternation uh, between singing and speaking. And this is the form that we, this is the form that uh, had uh, become very popular in our own country, in the United States, and starting around, well, really starting from the 19th century, but during the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you speak, you sing, you speak, you sing, then you speak, you sing, you dance, uh, all of those things are brought together. So uh, Leonard Bernstein was Mr. Classical Music. Now, when I was your age, he was the, the giant figure. Uh, I grew up in New York City. Uh, he was the giant figure of music during my youth, and he did everything. He conducted, he played the piano, he lectured, he spoke, he composed, he did just about everything. One of his ideas was to make a great American opera, or at least a great piece of musical theater that was American, that was somehow going to combine classical music uh, and the American, the American feeling, the American music. And for doing that, he uh, employed a great deal of jazz and a great deal of Hispanic music that up until that time had been sort of on the margin of, uh, of, uh, of, of musical theater. So that's what he did, now, that was his point. Now, he took, in this particular case, Candide um, could be called an operetta. That's an opera. That's a that's a lighter opera with spoken dialogue, or you could just say it's a Broadway musical. It's been many things to many people. It is a very very unique work. It had it had a start on Broadway. Uh, he was never satisfied. He revised it two or three times in his own lifetime, and there are even versions. Um, that were published after his death with accordingly uh, things that he still wanted to change. So there's no one form of Candide. But what you're going to see is this story. Uh, 
Uh, have any of you actually uh, read Candide in your classes? Some of you know. Okay, so some of you know it is. A it's a it's a story. It's a novel written um, in uh, published in 1759, uh, and that is French. Voltaire was French, and he was one of the great great French uh, authors. And it's a, and it's a story. It's a long long story with where a young man whose name is Candide. Uh, and his name means candid, means he's somebody who's very innocent, very starry-eyed, big, big, wide eyes, who thinks that everything is, believes in optimism. And Voltaire was very um, critical of the philosopher, whose name happened to be Leibniz, he was a German, happened to be, uh, he was very critical of the idea that this man, Leibniz, saw everything through what he considered rosy-colored glasses. So he wrote this long adventure, um, where our heroes are going to go through every disaster ever created by nature and by by mankind. So they're going to be earthquakes. They're going to be uh, uh, big storms at sea. Are there going to be wars? There's going to be torture. There's going to be cruelty on all levels. Um, and yet, our heroes they get to the end. They make it to the end. They are wiser at the end than they are at the beginning, but that's the course of the whole story. So what Bernstein has done is he's taken a, a European classic, uh, already 200 years old, uh, and he has m married it to our music, American music, Hispanic music, uh, a music that Leonard Bernstein was, uh, a language that Leonard Bernstein was seeking to, um, to make the language of American music classical music and American musical theater. Perfect. Um, so tell me, what, what, is, what is your role in this entire enterprise? How, how do you preside over the performance we're going to see today? How have you been involved up until this point? Um, what, what is the role? Let's just talk about conductor before we get to music director. Yeah, well, we'll translate, yeah, what does a conductor actually do? Um, you've all seen a conductor, right? I see somebody there waving his or her hands around, uh, either has a lot of hair flying around or then no hair at all, uh, very energetic, lots of, lots, lots of things happening. And um, if uh, it's exciting, you're happy, and if it's boring, you're not happy. Uh, and so that's what you see of the conductor's work. Uh, now, actually, most of the conductor's real work takes place before you come to the performance, and that's in the process of rehearsing. So. In an opera house, uh, I, you, you know, my, there are two different functions for a conductor. I'm also a symphonic conductor, and when I do, you know, straight concerts, I mean symphony orchestras, um, like the LA Phil, uh, then you simply rehearse the orchestra, and you come out and you perform, and that's, that's the process. The process in an opera company is far more complex because an opera is a complex art form. You have uh, singing, you have acting, you have theater, you have text, you have chorus, you have orchestra. And so my job is to oversee the preparation of each one of those uh, categories. And that it, the preparation is optimum, and then bringing them all together, putting them all together with one another is also optimum. So what do I do? Well, at the beginning of the process, I meet all the singers, and we work at the piano, and we decide all sorts of things, how fast something is gonna go, how slowly, that's called what the tempo is. Um, I coach the singers on perhaps my suggestions of what the best way to actually 
sing or vocally how to uh, accomplish their roles because these are very often very difficult. So you've got all of that. Uh, so that is on one-to-one -one basis and then in the room with the piano. Now, meanwhile, there is a stage director. You're going to meet Francesca Zambello later, so she's going to explain what she does on her side. Um, uh, and that preparation then goes on in a rehearsal room with all of the, uh, with the cast, always with the piano, stage director, and my participation. Meanwhile, there's a chorus. Now, there's, we have a great chorus master here, great chorus director, Grant Kershaw. He's going to prepare the chorus, and when they know their parts, then I'm going to come in, and I'm going to rehearse with them so that they, uh, I can give them a vision of what I want, how I want to do it, and how we're going to integrate that. And then they are brought into the process of staging the, the action, which means they're going to be in a room also with the piano, with the director, with, uh, uh, with, the, with the rest of the cast. Meanwhile, I go off and I take the orchestra by itself, and we will do several rehearsals, two, three, maybe occasionally four, uh, preparing the orchestra to play the piece. Now, that's, that's a very important part of my job. That's one of the central functions, because I'm responsible for the quality of the orchestra. And so uh, that, that part being done, we then bring together orchestra and singers. No costumes, no scenery, no action. Everybody sits at a line, all the singers on the stage, and the orchestra plays. We call that a Zitzprobe. That's a German word, which means uh, a rehearsal sitting down. It's an old tradition. You sit down, everybody has their music. So one, at, you have one opportunity between the conductor and the cast to acquaint yourself with the the singers with the sound of the orchestra and the orchestra to uh, accustom themselves to what does it sound like with the singers. And where do I have to listen to the singers? Where do I have to wait longer? Where do the singers need to breathe? That's the first part of that process. Now we're ready to get on stage. We have several days of rehearsing the opera with a piano on stage, no orchestra, so that the stage director can concentrate on all of the needs of the, of the singers, the scenery, the costumes, the lighting, all of that. And when that's all ready, we put orchestra together with, uh, with the, the, the theatrical element, and we work toward today. And today is the dress rehearsal, but you are, in essence, you're going to see a performance. Um, we are, we've done all of the preparation today, and you're a very important part of that because you are a, a live part of the of the action, um, we hope you're going to laugh. I think you're going to laugh. We got a lot. It's a very it is very witty, very very funny work, exciting, stimulating. You can laugh, you can cry, you can clap, you can do whatever you want out there, uh, <laughs> within limits. We have a few, <laughs> a few limitations on that, uh, but 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 this is a this is a work that is written also for the the reaction of the audience. So we're going to get a chance to see today. You're going to help us because we're going to see um, which lines get laughs, which ones flop, which ones didn't go anywhere where they thought they would. Um, we're also going to make sure that you don't laugh when you're supposed to cry because that happens too. Uh, so we want to we want to see, we want to gauge how we're doing from your reaction. You know, sometimes we have very, very strange things. You know, some, somebody, somebody says, well, I'm going to 
I'm going to, I'm going to kill you, and everybody laughs. Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe it wasn't meant to be funny, but if we deliver it incorrectly, or we deliver it in a, in a, in a you know, something that doesn't work, we, we're going to find that out from you today. So that's why you're a very important part of this process to me. So you mentioned your experience of opera when, when, when you were in high school. Um, can you talk about um, your experience of, of opera and how you fell under its spell? And I think more critically for, for this group, how you got from, from that moment to this moment and being the music director of the Los Angeles Opera? Well, there's 40 or 50 years in between then, yeah. <laughs> I, I got, I, I mean, my, my story would be longer than Candide's if I told you that, all that. So um, I, was, I did not come from a musical family. I have two brothers and two sisters. Uh, they were not musicians. My parents were not musicians. My grandparents were not musicians. Um, the closest musician I know of in my family was my great-grandfather, who was, a, uh, a, who was a, an immigrant from southern Italy. Um, and uh, he died in 1899. So I clearly had no contact with my great, great, great. So there was no, there wasn't really any uh, reason for me to become a musician, except that I used to listen to music and just liked it. And, but I also liked it less than my great passion at the time, which was baseball. Now baseball was my life and so eh, music was fine and all that. Now somehow at the age of 11 for complicated reasons, mainly because my best friend asked me if, he, if I would go to the opera with him because his mother had formed an opera company. This was all in New York City. And he thought that, he said, you know, my mom's done something stupid. She started a, an opera company uh, and she's insisting I go to the performance. I don't want to go. And I said, uh, we'll make a deal. I'll only go if I can sit in the front row and if I can bring a friend, so will you come with me? So I went home and I asked my, my Parents, oh, they were thrilled. Yes, of course, opera, very important. You should go to the opera. We'll all go to the opera. You sit in the front row. We'll, we'll get $2 seats. We'll sit in the back row. I had no idea what was about to happen to me. I fell in love on the spot. I was so taken with the feelings and the sound of the music and the singing and the story. I fell in love. And within, I would say, four months, three to four months, I saw several operas, uh, thanks to my friend and his mother, uh, my whole life changed because I became obsessed with the sound that I had been hearing. So I asked for piano lessons and I, within a year or so, I clearly knew that my life was going to be classical music. Well, I'm practicing the piano very hard. I got myself into the children's chorus, so I had some experience then singing in the, uh, in the opera. And within a few years, by, maybe by the time I was 13 or 14, I realized I actually wanted to conduct. And of course, you can't announce you're going to be a conductor at 13 and have anybody take you seriously. Uh, all my teachers encouraged me to continue to study math and everything else you're supposed to study at that age. Said, you know, just in case it doesn't work out, you know, you get yourself a degree and do something else. Um, so I did all that. I went to school, and, uh, and but I wanted to conduct. I wanted to conduct. I wanted to conduct. And so I went about doing as much as you can to educate yourself at that age, mostly, of course, practicing the piano day and night and day and day and night. By the time I got to be 15, I got into the High School of Music and Art. I, um, that's a wonderful, wonderful institution in New York City called Performing Arts High School now. And have you ever seen Fame? Yeah. Well, that was our high school. It wasn't quite the way you see it in the movie. It wasn't exactly that way. But that was our high school. And that was a wonderful place because, you know, I was sort of a, sort of a black sheep. There are not too many 13-year-olds who loved classical music and loved opera, so I felt very out of place. 
And uh, I remember the beautiful liberating feeling I got when I got to that school to discover that there were two or 3,000 other kids from New York, just like me, who also loved classical music and the arts. So it was a liberating experience to me, helped me a, a great deal psychologically uh, to just continue on my path. So um, I got into the Juilliard School to study conducting when I was 18. And um, by the time I'd graduated, I'd already actually started conducting professionally. And that the rest of the story is the rest of my life. I've been conducting all my life. I, I am so lucky and so happy and so privileged to have actually done what I wanted to do and love. That's a great privilege in life. And if I can send any message to you today, find your passion and try to make that your life. Because if you do something you love, you don't work a day in your life. It's not work. You're doing what you love. And when you do what you love, every day is great. So I want to, uh, we're going to take some questions from the audience, but I have, I have one more question for you, which is, is there anything in particular that people should be looking for or listening for um, in their experience uh, this morning with, with Candide? Any, any, anything musically that you want them to pay particular attention to? Well, I think I want you just to, um, to let the entire experience wash over you and uh, hear what you hear, feel what you feel. You know, you don't have to know anything about opera. In order to achieve, that's a, lots of people. Uh, lots of people go around saying, "Oh, you have to be prepared. You have to learn about it. You have to be cultured. You have to be. Uh, you have to be instructed." I would say, no. You just let it. You listen to it. You react it the same way you do when you go to a movie. I've often had the experience saying to somebody, "Oh, how'd you like the performance?" And before they say, they apologize and say, "Well, I actually, I, I'm not." really very cultured or I don't really have, I don't really know much about opera, so I can't say. And I say to them, you don't have to know anything, but let me ask you a question. Have you been to the movies? Yes. What have you seen? I saw X. Did you like it? People say, yes, loved it. No, hated it. Yes, very exciting. No, boring. Yes, I like the actress. No, you don't have any inhibition about your reaction. And that, I think, is a, should be a good guide to you as you listen, because once upon a time, opera was uh, the popular f art form in the 19th century, in Italy and especially, it was a popular, everybody just went to the opera. And they weren't people that had been to conservatory or been to music school or had lessons or uh, instruction, they just went and they reacted naturally. And I think that can be a good, good guide for you. Just listen, let it, let it uh, wash over you, laugh, cry, feel anything you want to feel. Okay, so we have a question from Sophia Rivas from Larchmont Charter High School. Sophia, you here? Yes. Okay, great. Um, the question is, is it hard to conduct at a steady tempo and for so many instruments, to which I would add, and singers? Well, part of your job as the conductor is to be the uh, point of coordination. You choose a tempo, you impose that tempo, but you still also have to be flexible about that tempo in order to be sure that everybody can sing and play at the tempo um, that you are indicating. But uh, yeah, I'm the policeman down there. Uh, if it gets out of order, I've got to somehow bring it in order or I'm supposed to just organize it in such a way that everybody actually understands easily uh, where we're all going. Great. Um, so, uh, Jonathan Meza from our friends uh, Mark and Eva Stern Mass School. 
Yes. Uh, asked, how do you express the themes in Candide via the orchestra? Well, I don't have to express any themes. Uh, they express themselves. Uh, so what I do uh, as a conductor is I try to uh, get out of the way of the music and let the music speak directly from the orchestra and from the stage and singers right to you. Um, in other words, conducting, although conductors are reputed to have very big egos, um, my view of conducting is to get your ego out of it and to get yourself out of it and to try to become one with the music, with the composition. So I'm a, I am a vehicle through which the music travels. So I actually don't have to make an expression from a theme. A theme has an expression. Um, it's happy, it's sad, it's agitated, it's peaceful, any of those things. If I, if I correctly or adequately uh, execute that feeling, it's gonna happen by itself. Thank you. Uh, so Vishwanath uh, Durgam from North Hollywood High School. You've got a big fan club there, huh? <laughs> uh, asked our final question, which is, how will the satire be shown in the format of a musical? That's quite a complicated question, but excellent. you have that, a minute to answer it. <laughs> That's an excellent question. Well, it, it is a satire, and it's, that means that there is irony in so much of what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of horseplay, a lot of uh, fun, but it's going to have a secondary meaning behind it. And it had one set of meanings for Voltaire at the time, and the people who read Voltaire uh, 200 years ago, uh, uh, 250 years ago, actually. And it's going to have another set of meanings, what it would have had in the time of Leonard Bernstein in the 1950s. And it's going to have a third layer, which is what does it all mean today? So you're going to see things where I'm sure you're going to say, hmm, that makes me think of something that's going on in our world today. Maybe the political world, maybe the uh, social world, maybe um, just in everyday life. You're going to see things, and you sh should, I'm sure, you'll see them mirrored somewhere or other in this satire. Fantastic. Uh, please join me in uh, thanking James Conlon for spending some time with us this morning. Thank And it is my uh, enormous pleasure, as James mentioned, uh, you know, opera in the end is, is music and storytelling. And so uh, he represents the musical half of the equation and the uh, theatrical half of the equation is introduced by my next guest, who is Francesca Zambello, who is the stage director for Candide. Welcome, Francesca. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, morning. everybody. Am Thank I sitting in the director's chair? Please. Okay, gotcha. You Hi, are, everybody. in fact, the director. Wow, look at this group. I'm so excited you're here. I can hardly stand it. Oh my God, you are our first audience, and I bet you are gonna be an amazing audience. I can see that already. No pressure. So uh, we started the conversation with James um, in talking about uh, Candide, which is why, why are we doing Candide in an opera house? Why are we doing Candide now? Um, as we talked about, it's kind of a hybrid piece where it's kind of half musical theater. It'll feel very familiar to people. Uh, the music's very accessible. There's lots of dialogue. Um, why are we doing it in an opera house and why are we doing it now? Well, ooh, a big question. Well, first of all, um, Candide is written by Leonard Bernstein, which I'm sure you all know, who is probably our most important American composer. Uh, how many of you know West Side Story? Okay. 
He wrote West Side Story the same year that he wrote Candide, which is incredible to think about, that he wrote one of the most important American musicals. And then he turned around and wrote something that is, that is basically an opera. And it's an opera because it uses operatic voices, which you're going to hear today, a big orchestra. It also has actors and some what we call music theater people in it. And normally, uh, it would not use amplification. The people singing today don't actually need amplification. It is their own voices that, that you can hear in a big theater. Also, Candide, like a lot of operas, can deal with what we call a big story, a meaningful story, something that conveys huge ideas. And in this case, I'm sure you talked with James uh, and Christopher a little bit about the story of Candide and the meaning of, of I heard James mention satire, but the big theme. And, and what's important is, like, I'm sure some of you are really good history students and you know about what is the age of the Enlightenment. Yes, maybe, no, okay, <laughs> all right. You're gonna go back and learn about it because what's great about Voltaire, who wrote the book that Candide is based on, is that the Age of Enlightenment is what, in a way, empowered the world. It was the thing that meant that classes were breaking down. There was not a noble class and a commoner class that the individual had the right to become something. And that, of course, is later something that's at the very core of our American Constitution. And without that way of thinking that Voltaire and others opened up, we wouldn't be where we are today. And that's, of course, the French in many ways opened the doors for us to think about the meaning of freedom, a constitution, the rights of the individual. And so that's what's in a way at the core of this story, because the story is about a young man who's a servant, Candide, who falls in love with a noble woman, Cunegonde. And her father finds out, how many of you know that like your parents don't like who you're dating? <laughs> Hello? All right, okay, yeah, somebody's been there. Okay, right, okay. So her dad does not like who she is messing around with, and he finds out about it, and he kicks, he kicks Candide out. And Candide then has to roam the world, the whole world, and we are going to follow him on his journey around the world. The bad thing is, is that Cunegonde's father also fell on rather hard times, and she ends up having to roam the world. Should I go to the end? Yes, please. And then what finally happens is they... Spoiler alert. They find each other at the very end of their ropes when they have both lost everything in a way and they realize that they can start over. And that's the great thing. You can always start over. You can always make something better yourself. And they start over, and what do they do? They make a garden together, a garden being the great symbol of beginning life anew. And so that, to me, is the amazing message that Voltaire and that Leonard Bernstein believed in. Because when Leonard Bernstein wrote this, he was under huge attack in the United States. He was accused of being a communist, very important part of history in the 1950s. Um, and this, in a way, is an answer to that. It's a revolt to that. It's the fact that the individual, that the citizen, has rights. And that's still something that we need to think about today all the time. Correct? Are you with me on that page? Yeah, okay, good.
Um, so, so tell us, what, what does a stage director do? What, what do you do for a living? Can you describe a, a typical day in your life? Sure. Well, um, like the, the sort of simple thing, I think, is, is that James, who was just here, is responsible for everything that you are going to hear. The way the singers sing, the way the orchestra plays. And as a director, you are responsible for everything that people see. Everything that you see comes from the work of the director. The choreography, the lighting, the costumes, the scenery, the way people move on stage. Um, and I do all of that with a great team. You know, being a, a director in theater, opera, musicals, you're, you're part of a team. It's like sports. If one person on the team is bad, you will fail. And what's great is that we have an amazing team here and we, I think, have made something that looks good, sounds good, and tells a story. And that's basically our job, as the, my job as the director is to tell the story. When you see a film, you think about, is that story well told? When you see a musical or a play or you read a book, you're trying to see, is the story well told? And that's my job. So when, when, when you were the age of some of our guests in, in high school, did you ever imagine that you would become a, a stage director for opera? Was that? No, I was, but I was interested in directing for theater. How many of you like theater here? Okay, good. That's great. I love that. I love that. And I realized at about your age that theater didn't have to be about performing, that I could work backstage and that I could work on the costumes and the lighting and, the and what the set looked like. And that's what really captivated me was the, the picture of it all. And that's what I was drawn to at your age. And I started working in like every possible school production backstage summertime, summer stock, summer theater, amateur theater, anything and everything just to be around the theater and to work in the theater. Because if you want to be an artist, how many of you think you want to be an artist? Visual, performing, anything. That's your dream. Then follow your dream. But I got to tell you, your dream is really hard work. <laughs> really hard work. Like, I'm on call 24-7. And if you want to be an artist of some kind, you have got to follow your passion and work incredibly hard. Yeah, let's hear it for that. <laughs> we, we often, uh, James said the same thing. I think it's true. You, you want to follow your passion. You want to uh, pursue your dreams. But how do you, how do you, you need help with that. How do you find yourself in the path of, of opportunities? How do you align yourself with people who are going to, help you channel that passion into an actual career? Well, I think it's important when you are starting out and you want to follow your dream about something, just remember, no job is too small. If somebody asks you to do something and you've gotten your foot in the door somewhere, y your answer is, yes, I would be happy to go get 50 cups of coffee for you. Um, yes, I would be happy to make a 1,000 copies of that. Um, and I think that's one of the ways that you can make a job in the arts is to go and work as an intern, as a gopher, as an apprentice. And those opportunities are open to everyone because everyone in our field, we always need help. We always want to take in somebody new to come work for us and to come help us. Um, and those are the kind of opportunities that you need to go put yourself in front of those doors 
to ask for it. And remember, I always say the worst thing anybody can say is no, right? So don't be afraid to ask. Um, and that's actually how you start, whether it's going to a local theater company or, you know, we're in California, going to somebody who's making a film, a student who's making a film, who's a graduate student, and you're only in high school. And you say, I want to work for you. I want to help you. I want to do whatever you want. I'll be your gopher. Well, you don't know that that graduate student's not going to turn out to be Steven Spielberg in 20 years, right? So it's important to work in the chain to find opportunities. Uh, and like I say, no job is too small. I think that's a great point. And I mean, that, that those are institutional opportunities. One of the things that I find extremely encouraging is that I notice um, that young people are creating opportunities for themselves. And certainly in, in the opera world, there's an incredible group of kind of 20-somethings who have created their own opera companies. And that is feeding into a system which allows those people to have opportunities in the big opera houses. Did you, did you create your own opportunities as well as relying on the, the, the help of, of institutions? Absolutely. I did create in, in my 20s. Um, I directed things like an opera in an aquarium in a water tank um, or in... <laughs> Idomeneo and Shed Aquarium. Um, I also directed a lot of things in a garage, in church basements. Um, and as a director, it was all about getting people together. There was a church in New York City where I directed a bunch of operas in the basement with young singers. Uh, the, the, you, you can make your own future. And if you're an artist, very often you, to be able to prove yourself, have got to create your own opportunities so that you can sh prove to people that you can do it. You know, everybody says like, oh, I want to be an actress. Well, go out and find, find a way to show people that you can do it. I want to be a director. Find a way to go out and show people that you can do it. Nobody in the arts is going to actually say to you, here, let me like give you a job. You've got to create your own opportunities very often. And I think that that's, I think that's true in all of the arts. You want to be a writer? Then write. You got to do it. Practice, practice, practice. That's how you get to Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also important to think about the fact that um, you're extremely well established in your career, and yet you're still pursuing those opportunities. You're still in a learning curve. You're still, I mean, it's a, it's a never ending quest. You have things that you want to accomplish in your career. I think that you acknowledge there's things that you still don't really know. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. Isn't that the great thing about what we do is that we're constantly learning. And I am so jealous of all of you that you are in school. I know there are days you get up and you're like, oh, God, I don't want to go to school. But you know what? I wish I could go back to school. I would do anything to be able to be there, have people pouring knowledge on me and information. Yay to the teachers. Oh my God, yay to the teachers. So this is the time to like soak it up because people are there helping you. Uh, and again, I, I just think that you can never stop learning, which is really one of the most gratifying things about being an artist is that we are constantly learning something new. And it's like I said when I came in, you are gonna teach me something today because you are the first audience for Candide here in this theater. So how you react is going to help me and my team know, oh, they didn't laugh at that, maybe we need to make it funnier. Oh, they did laugh at that, that's good, let's make sure we take a beat there and wait for a second. 
oh, they didn't understand that part. Can we make it clearer? So I'm counting on you to teach me something today. Can you do that? Yeah. Okay, good. So going, going, going back to your, your pursuit as an artist, did you, did you always identify yourself as an artist? This was the only thing that you could have done with your life? Yeah, yes, I, I was pretty driven at an early age. I, I like knew that I wanted to be a, a director because a director is a storyteller. And I think a lot of people, if you want to be a writer or you want to work in film, you want to work in musicals, whatever, storytelling is at the base of it. Character is at the base of it. And that you need to say, I got something to say. I've got something to share with other people. And I'm going to do that. And so that's, that to me was something that was like an ache from early on. I also was a musician. I would play the piano. I played the flute. Those are all great things if you want to work in music is get as much experience in as many different kinds of things as you can. And, you know, the amazing thing about opera is that this is a really flexible art form. You know, we have, like, operas now that are in hip-hop or we have operas that are in rap now. Me expressing through music is an incredible international tool and a way that can reach so many different kinds of people. But so how, how, you know, in your early years when you were trying to do this very unlikely and very unusual and very difficult thing, you must have had a series of setbacks. How did you, keep that, how did you keep that fire in the belly alive to, to continue to pursue that dream? I, I, I don't know. I, now when I look back now, I, I don't really know. I think people saying no made me be more assertive. And um, I will say I see there are a lot of young women here. Uh, girls, young women, women, you know, now is our age, now is our time. You know, people, yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people, and many of them unfortunately were men, said no to me on the way. But it is up to you to go out there and prove something. This country needs to live in a time of true equality, of race and gender. And I really believe that it's your generation. It's your generation that is going to speak to that. And one of the great things about if you are an artist, you have a tool to reach people in a way that they may not necessarily realize. You can trick them into understanding something by the arts. And so I, I urge you and implore you to think about that, to think a little deeper about that if you could, okay? So don't let anybody say no, and if they do, let that, be let that add to the fire in your belly. And be polite about it, don't get mad, just go be better. Perfect, perfect. So we have some uh, questions from the audience. Uh, the first is from Bao Yi Lei from uh, the Mark and Eva Stern Math and Science School. Uh, and the question is, where did you get the inspiration for this production of Candide? That's a great question. Where do we get the inspiration? Well, when you go in, it's, it will look like um, it's inspired by a French warehouse. Not a sort of warehouse over here, but a, 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 um, an 18th century building. And it's the idea is that in this old warehouse, Voltaire, who is the writer, who is the character from which all the characters come from, finds the tools and the, the costumes and the scenery and the props to tell his story. 
And so that was my visual inspiration. And then, of course, I use, as a director, you look at art a lot from a certain period. You read books that are from that period. You try to understand what was going on in the world. And the world at that time was in revolution, not unlike it is today, actually. Uh, so there's a follow-up question, which is, are there, are there any kind of um, scenes or, or uh, themes or leitmotifs or kind of what, what we call Easter eggs uh, in the production that, that we should be paying particular attention to? Um, well, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things that I think is so powerful about the production is the idea, you know, as a, as a lifelong theater lover, one of the things I love about the concept of the idea is this kind of... Um, meta-theatricality, where you are, you are conscious of the creation of storytelling before your very eyes. And so this, uh, Candide is a very difficult work in a way because you have to, um, as you pointed out, you have to, or James maybe, you have to travel the entirety of the world over the course of the next two and a half hours. And so I think you find a really clever way of, of doing that by kind of winking at the audience about the fact that it is, it is storytelling. So it has this kind of uh, you, you see the act of creation before your very eyes. Thank you. Thanks for prompting me on that. Um, you will see, uh, as I said, everything comes from Voltaire's imagination. And so it doesn't mean that like when we go to a city, and in this story we go to Montevideo, Lima, Chile, Madrid, Peru, uh, uh, Venice, uh, Germany, and so we just take like one little visual cue for that place. Like, you know, if you're in, uh, you know, a certain city, it's just one little thing. And you will also notice, I think you'll like this, all of the cast wear underwear all night. They wear underwear, old-fashioned underwear, long johns, and the women wear a hoop. And on top of it, we put like a military jacket to suggest that they're in the Bavarian army. Or there's a scene in the second act where we go to El Dorado, which was supposedly the fantastical city of the Incas. Well, everyone is wearing gold, but it's not like big, beautiful gold. It's actually cheap little gold paillettes at, that you can buy at you know CVS when you're decorating your you know Valentine cards. Um, and so the idea was this sense of you can tell the story through simple storytelling measures. So when you see the cast first, you will notice that they are all just wearing their underwear. And on top of it, they will put one simple item or like a tricorn hat. That's a hat with three corners to suggest that they're, that they're French. Um, and so that is a way, is the device, with device, so to speak, that we see inside of this French warehouse, which is, I think, a pretty cool set, and I hope you like it. Well, and I, and I think in doing so, you know, you've you've actually highlighted what is the what is the incredible power of the theater, which is the power of the imagination of the audience. That that in in opera, everyone assumes that everything has to be so grand, and while the production is grand in its own way, it relies on the fact that that simple hat takes the audience to the place that you need them to go for storytelling purposes in an, in an instant. It's um, I think you've really leaned into the, the power of the art form. I, I think that you know you as an audience as, and as a director never underestimate the intelligence of the audience. The audience very often through a simple clue will know where they are, what's going on. And as a director we have an expression we say, I don't want the audience to get ahead of us. 
I don't want them to be ahead of the story. I want us to be leading the audience. And that's really important in a piece like this where I feel like you are, you are in on all the jokes. You are part of it. Uh, and like I said, I'll see how you react and then we'll, we'll know. We'll know if we're doing okay or not. Great. So this is an anonymous question. Uh, what is the structure of rehearsals for the opera? What is the structure of rehearsals? Great question. Um, basically, we rehearse uh, usually about a month. We rehearse in a room. In this case, there's a room deep inside of, uh, of this building that's a rehearsal room. And it's probably just like if you do a musical or a play at school. Do you put lines on the floor with tape? Yes. Okay. We do the same thing. We put indications that suggest what the set looks like. We draw out the ground plan of the set on the floor. We rehearse in a room with all the cast. In this case, it's 32 people or 36 people. Um, and with just a piano, everybody's wearing their street clothes and the director and the conductor are helping them figure out what they do. Uh, and it's, it's in a room like this and we rehearse every day, usually six or eight hours a day in that room. Sometimes we have another room if there's a choreographer with a lot of dance where they will be working in the other room. And then often there's another room that's for what we call the music coaches where they are teaching the people the music if they didn't learn their music before they came. <laughs> um, and so we usually have like a lot of rehearsals going on at once. And we have a, a wonderful thing, a rehearsal schedule every day, because it changes every day. And so that's kind of our battle plan. Uh, and we do that rehearsal in a room for several weeks, and then we add orchestra rehearsals, which is um, what James does. First, the orchestra rehearses by themselves. Then the singers join the orchestra. And meanwhile, on the stage, we're putting together the set we're doing costume fittings. You know, a production like this has about 150 costumes, uh, 36 people on stage, 60 people in the orchestra pit, another 50 people or so backstage. So there's a lot of machine and people that you've got to coordinate, and that all happens usually in the last 10 days of rehearsal, so that by the time we get to today, the dress rehearsal, you're actually seeing everything come together totally complete for the first time, for you and for me. So we have time for one final question. I think it's a great way to end, which is, why should schools and school districts dedicate uh, teaching in the arts? This is from the Northridge High School. Thank you, Norwich High School. Thank you. Well, the arts, the arts are our salvation. The arts are the thing that help us understand the world, the problems of the world, the complexities of politics and society. And the arts provide a bridge the most important thing is that the arts can be a bridge to different factions and people who do not have like ways of thinking. And that's how I think today the arts can do their greatest service. So I hope you enjoy this morning. I appreciate that you all came. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Enjoy the performance. Thank you so much. Thank you.